You are listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back. Uh, Happy New Year. It's 2015. Welcome back to another year of the podcast. We actually thought we would be doing show 200 uh, to close out 2014. Didn't work out that way. Travel schedules and what have you. Uh, It's kind of fun to be kicking off the year 2015, especially because (laughs) uh, this week has been really busy, really crazy. And I actually haven't had a lot of time to um, maybe prepare some of the stuff that I wanted to. So doing the uh, the Q and A show is not a bad way to start the year for me. Kind of ease back into uh, into the grind. Uh, just wanted you to know it, it's Wednesday night. The podcast is coming out tomorrow. Uh, I've, I've been kind of slammed this week getting caught up. I took uh, two weeks off. Which I do every year at Christmas time. And when I, when I do that, I completely unplug. And by unplug, I mean, I don't do Facebook. I don't do email. Uh, I, I, I try to stay off of those as much as I can. I really don't do them. Uh, I, I, I might answer one from Jim if he sends something to me, but that's about it. Uh, I, um, I read books. I got through, I want to say it was five or six books. Uh, over Christmas break, it was just fantastic time. Uh, obviously spent a lot of time with my kids and my family. I, I do some baking and, uh, just try to, uh, let the brain recharge. And I, I really recommend that. It's helpful for me. It's one of those things I look forward to. Uh, I, I, I have the opportunity to take a nice vacation in the spring and one in the summer as well. And, and those, uh, have historically not been as relaxing. I mean, I've got kids and so you, you, uh, you know, (laughs) there's only so much peace you're going to get, but the Christmas break tends to be a a real peaceful one and one where I can kind of collect my thoughts. And, uh, trust me, I did, uh, when I say unplug, it's not like I stopped thinking about what we're doing here. Uh, two of the books that I read directly had to do with stuff we're doing here. And stuff we're planning for 2015 and beyond. And so I, I actually, uh, in the weekend before getting back here this past Monday, uh, put together a couple like monster memos to our board and, and everybody else and, uh, just kind of regurgitating some of the thoughts that I had come up with or, or, or put together over the break to get their feedback on it. Uh, it's an exciting time to be here at Strong Towns. It's exciting to be doing what we're doing. I've uh, looked back uh, and am amazed not only at the ground we've covered, but at all of the momentum that we've created. 2015 is going to be a fun year, and I think a year with a lot of change to the positive. I'm in here tonight it is, uh, let me check on the weather. It is two below right now, going down to a projected 13 below. Uh, the wind chill values are expected to be between 20 and 35 degrees below zero. Uh, for those of you that don't know, I live in central Minnesota. Uh, it's rather chilly here at times. This is the, the month, this and February are the two months where we get 
uh, hammered with the cold. The bizarre thing is that uh, we've not had the snow this year. We we had snow really early in November and a lot of it. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a great year. Snow is fun. And when you can get a good base of snow early on, you get a lot of skiing, sledding. Uh, everything is just everything I like to do is really great when you get nice early snow. But that was it. Uh, and it faded away. And we had a week where it was like London fog here. Uh, it was in the 50s. You, you couldn't see across the, you know, I'd look out towards the train tracks from the office. You could, couldn't see across the rail yard. The fog was so thick. Uh, it was kind of nasty and the snow just went away and it hasn't really come back. We got a little dusting, uh, sometime over the weekend. And, you know, there's some of that on like my porch and stuff, but the yard doesn't have any snow. We certainly can't ski, can't sled. Uh, we did some ice skating. Uh, that actually works out pretty well because the lakes have a, a ton of it's really thick ice right now. Imagine having an ice skating rink the size of a lake. Uh, it's essentially what you know the ten thousand lakes of Minnesota are right now. At least the ones up north by us here. It it, uh, it it's nice, but it would be a lot nicer if we had snow to accompany this really really nasty cold. Anyway, I came in tonight. Because I know I owe you guys a podcast. It's been a while. Uh, I want to welcome you back to the new year. And what we planned for show 200, I hope this works out. We asked people to submit questions. And I've got a handful of them here. Uh, I was planning to have uh, someone in here doing the show with me. And, and that fell through. I don't have to tell you why, but it, it just it wasn't going to work out. That's okay. I'll do these. I said I wasn't going to read them. Uh, I didn't read them. I printed them out and I just read them before I got started here. So I haven't had a lot of time to sit and think about these. So you're going to be getting fresh reactions off the top of my head. I've got maybe half a dozen questions. Uh, a couple of them aren't very good. Just kidding. Matt Steele. <laughs> but the rest of them are, uh, are pretty good. So let's get started. This one's from Michael. Michael says, as a college student who has been impacted through Strong Towns, I'm curious what would be the best way to get involved with what you are doing while practically applying it to my local community. Uh, I think that's a, that's a really good question. And, and actually, we have been trying to uh, answer that question systematically really over the last year and a half, since since Jim... Kuman started as the executive director. Uh, when I started doing this, and this is going to be a long answer, but it's a podcast. I got plenty of time, right? When I started writing this blog, uh, th there was no part of me that thought I was creating a movement uh, for change. I, I was really trying to figure things out and find out if there were other people out there who were seeing things the way I was seeing things. I was working as an engineer, as a planner running a planning company here in central Minnesota and, you know, doing work that I didn't think was helping my area, helping my community. And, and I, I couldn't find any traction here locally to do anything differently. So I started just writing this blog. Is there anybody out there seeing the things I'm seeing, struggling with the things I'm struggling with? And that over time grew into uh, the nonprofit which has continued to grow into what now we look at as the Strong Towns movement, a body of thought, 
a body of knowledge and a growing body of action uh, to actually change the way cities operate, the way we go about creating growth, development, jobs, prosperity, uh, our operating system for success for cities. We sit here at this very interesting point where, wow, all of a sudden we've got all these people who are actively involved in what we're doing. They're not only writing for us, uh, they're not only, uh, you know, become members and, and actually put up money to help support the organization. Thank you so much. It is a huge, huge deal, uh, for those of you that have done that. But we have all these people who are saying, you know, let's go. We're ready to take a hill. We're ready to go, uh, you know, do what we need to do to, to build strong towns. We're, we're buying into it. We're ready to do it. And there's this, uh, there's this part of me that says, let's go, let's do it, right? I'm the uh, I'm the one in the organization who's kind of out front pushing, saying, I'm ready to go do this. Let's, let's go take that hill. And luckily, I have some pretty smart people around me who are saying, hang on a sec. Uh, if you uh, take that hill, uh, that might not strategically be like the place you want to be. Uh, you may be like the cities you talk about, kind of um, stretched out a little bit too far. Maybe we should do A, B, C, and D and uh, have a more strategic approach. Obviously, there's a balance there. You could you know, strategize yourself uh, to death and not get anywhere. But we've been taking some time here now to kind of answer that question. How do we translate this body of thought that is the Strong Town's message how do we translate that into action? I don't know quite yet. And I say that it's not really fair because I, I do have a lot of very specific ideas. There's a lot of things that we're going to try this year. And if you are a member, uh, one of the things that I'm going to be doing tomorrow or Friday is preparing a member briefing uh, that will be a, kind of an extra members only podcast uh, you'll be getting an email on that to let you know where you can uh, you can listen to that, and it's basically the under the hood kind of uh, briefing on where we're at and what we're going to do. What's our strategy? How can you get involved in implementing that strategy? What are the things that you can do to help us get to the next step? Ideally, where we're going is that we want people to be able to take action in their own communities to make them strong towns. What we've realized is that in any community that is going to change, we kind of have three target audiences and we can't do anything without two of those three kind of target audiences. The first we'll call uh, strong citizens. And this is the one that I'm kind of the most passionate about. These are people who are not professionals, not uh, affiliated with the government. They just care. They, they just care. This is George, right? This is our... Uh, fabled George, uh, you know, George Matthew Linkert, the fourth. This is George. He's not in the government. He's uh, not a professional. He just cares. And because he cares, he's willing to show up. He's willing to do things. Communities need a lot of strong citizens. They need a lot of people who care. That's our, that's, that's our main target audience. And I'll give you this. When we put the national gathering together and people showed up, I'm not sure what we were expecting, uh, but we weren't expecting what happened. Uh, we're used to, we being myself, uh, Jim, Andrew Burleson, our board chair, 
uh, some of the people that have been real intimate in setting this up, largely coming from a, a CNU kind of background, they we're more prepared for the second target group to show up, and that being professionals, than who actually showed up, which I would label largely as strong citizens, people who are not professionals, people who just care. That got me so excited because that's the that, those are the people that are going to make a difference. The second group is, like I said, the professionals. Uh, Andrew calls them the apes, the architects, planners, engineers, uh, the apes of the world. They're, they're the people out there working for city staff, working as consultants. They're the ones doing the work. Uh, the, the third would be public officials, elected officials, appointed officials, people who are directly affiliated with the government, who are making the decisions. What we have learned or what we have figured out is that if we're going to make change in a community, if we're going to have a community actually make a substantive policy change so that they are becoming more of a strong town, they are implementing a strong town's approach in their community, we've got to have two of those three groups on board. We've got to have citizens, elected officials, or professionals. We've got to have two of those three. Because if, if we've got real strong citizen support, and real good staff support, we can overcome bad elected officials, right? We can get things done. If we've got really good public officials and really strong citizen base, uh, we can overcome really bad staff. If we've got great staff and great public officials, we can overcome uh, a lack of public support. We've got to have strategies to, to help educate the public and help bring them on board. But basically, we can move things forward in a community like that. So we realize that we need two of the three. And the way that we're going to communicate with and the way that we're going to empower uh, each of those three stratas is different. Part of what we're working on right now is how do we create campaigns that activate our strong citizens provide our elected officials with actions they can take and give our uh, staff members, our professionals, things that they can do to all support the goals of that campaign. This is switching from being a communications kind of organization to an action kind of organization. And so, you know, Michael, when you ask the question, what, I'm a college student, I want to get involved, what can I do? Uh, I hope you're a member you'll get, you know, a membership's 25 bucks. We've made the bar really, really low because we want you to be connected and be involved. But we want you to take that little bit of commitment, right? Uh, become a member. We're going to be working on that with our members. And the goal for this year is to activate people to go out and do things. That is the, that, that, that's the obsession I have right now. That's the thing I spent all break working on. It's the thing I've really spent the last three or four months working on. Uh, we're going to be rolling that out this year, and I think it's going to be. I think 2015 is going to be the game-changing year for strong towns. All right, <laughs> we won't get through this podcast if I spend that much time on each one. Uh, Greg asked a question: What local initiatives have you seen that you'd most like to help implement if you weren't doing strong towns? Wow, uh, it's funny because. I live here in central Minnesota. I live here in Brainerd, Minnesota. Um, my family moved here in the early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s. They're, 
buried in the cemetery here when I drop the girls off from school to school. Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll walk over through the cemetery and just kind of like look at, I mean, it's, it's literally just a, a small detour on the way back to, uh, to the, uh, the drop off point. And I, I, I'll just, you know, look at the, uh, the, the gravestones. There's my grandfather and my grandmother. Uh, but there's also, you know, great, great relatives, people that died in world war one. There's a whole bunch of Maroons, uh, and, and closely related people in this smaller community cemetery. I say that because I've wanted to leave here many times. And we did an episode last year called another place for Chuck. And I, I'm, I mean, there was a big part of me that was just ready to leave, but I'm here and I don't see myself leaving here. And I think I've reconciled the notion that I probably won't leave. Uh, even though this place to me is like fingernails on the chalkboard many times, uh, it's my home and it's where my family is. It's where my roots are. Uh, it's a place that I kind of like family want to hate, but, uh, you wind up just, you know, having love and compassion for nonetheless. If, if I were going to be involved in initiatives that were not strong towns, uh, that would be the kind of thing I would do. I, I, I really, uh, would like to work more locally here. Uh, that was what I started doing. It was my frustration with not getting anywhere locally that actually got me here doing strong towns. I think as I look to my future, uh, I mean, I'm only 41, so I'm a, I'm a fairly young guy, got a lot of years ahead of me. But I look to my future and say, you know, what, what would I like to be doing 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now? Uh, I, I hope that I spend a, a bit of time out doing the work that I'm doing now and helping to grow this nationwide, really continent-wide, and, and in some cases worldwide movement. But I would like to, at the end of the day, be able to kind of get back to the place that means the most to me uh, inside, uh, that being this place here. And how do I help it move to that next step? It's interesting because I started out the the side of this where I was going out and giving talks and, and trying to share this message in the very infant days of this organization, I started out here and in the communities immediately around here and got like no traction. It was, uh, I would show up and I remember one meeting where everybody was sleep, you know, a couple of guys were sleeping. Uh, when you get to Q and a, everybody would kind of attack you and just say how stupid you were and how dumb your ideas were. And I remember just being uh, really, really frustrated by this place. You're never a prophet in your own land. I get that. I understand that. Uh, man, I have lived that. The funny thing is, the more I've gotten out and the more communities I've visited and the more things that I've been able to do far, far away from this community, the more of an expert I've suddenly become here at home. Now, I'm not beloved. There's nobody lining up to say, Chuck, come help us. Tell us what to do. Uh, we'd like your advice. We'd like your consultation on this. Uh, you know, we'd like a strong town set of eyes to look at this. I, I still, you know, I couldn't give away my services here in my hometown in the way that people, you know, are, are, are asking me to come to all kinds of other places and do that kind of thing. Uh, but there's starting to be a little bit of ice thawing here. 
this month, I am going to be attending three different meetings. Uh, I've been invited to to share a little bit of the Strong Downs message as it would relate to Brainerd and as it would relate to a couple of specific projects. If if I could do something in the future, it would be that kind of stuff. How do we take this body of knowledge that we've created and apply it to my own hometown so it can be a strong town? Derek, uh, here's Derek's question. Black Friday parking was fun. Do you have any more crowdsourcing ideas for us? Yes. Uh, when I said a couple, you know, when I when I answered Michael earlier and talked about this moving from a, a movement to share information with people to a movement to actually work with people to do things. What we're really talking about is that uh, we're a small organization. We have an incredibly small budget. Uh, we uh, have an impact that in a reach that is greater than budget uh, organizations with budgets 10 times what ours is. The reason that, that is, is because we've, we've had to be really scrappy, right? We've had to be able to take nothing and, and turn it into something. And what that does is it makes you come up with a, a whole bunch of different thoughts and a whole bunch of different strategies that you wouldn't have if you had a, a lot more resources. Black Friday parking is a, is a part of that. And I, one of the things that I've learned now from doing Black Friday parking for a couple of years is that you get the right meme, you get the right... Uh, kind of set of uh, of ideas out there. And you can mobilize a lot of people to do some really great things. When I talked earlier about campaigns, what we're really talking about is identifying issues. And let's just riff on this Black Friday parking one for a minute. I don't think that's like the most pressing issue. But let's say that parking standards were a, a, a hugely pressing issue. Uh, and, and I think they're important. I, I wouldn't rate them the top issue, but let's say that we're going to have a campaign to focus on reducing all the wasted space uh, that is devoted today to parking. What would we do? Well, we would have a series of uh, outreach programs, a series of events, a series of things that would, first of all, highlight the problem. And, and let people communicate the problem in a way that was easy to understand. Black Friday parking is a great example of this because clearly we can see if the parking lot's not full on Black Friday, why do we have so much darn parking, right? It, it's, a, it's an easy thing to kind of turn into an elevator speech. So when we're activating that strong citizen to be the advocate, wow, they can go out, take a photo, show it to their friends, show it to their neighbors, share it on social media, get the word out and, and and make a really strong case and then turn around and look and say, look, this isn't just us. This is everybody. Everybody's experiencing this too. Then we can get stuff to the uh, professionals, right? And we can talk a professional, professional geek kind of language. Like, look, here's the literature. Here's the tech stuff. Here's the kind of ordinance amendment. Here, here's the stuff that you need to actually put this into a, a policy uh, so that things are changes that we're addressing this kind of issue. Then we turn to our elected officials and we say, all right, here's how you need, here's how you can communicate this. Here's the three talking points that you can use uh, to be able to go and speak coherently to this, uh, to a very broad audience, to a strong towns kind of audience. So you're not talking to just 
a narrow niche of business owners or a narrow niche of environmentalists or whatever it is that your constituency is, but you can present this in a way that would be a, a strong towns kind of way and appeal to a much broader coalition of people. We need to do, I mean, I said at our board meeting, we need to do half a dozen of these a year at least, right? Uh, I don't know if we have the capacity to do that right now. I mean, our, our staff literally is me and Jim Kuman. So the, there's a limited capacity of the number of these things that we can do and do well. Uh, but this is exactly the direction that we're taking this in. My task list right now has me going through and, and putting together a, a number of these. And over the course of this month, we're going to be working with our members to kind of define some of those more critical issues. I've got some ideas. We want to hear back from them. We want to help them help us prioritize some of these things where we can have some breakthroughs, come up with some of these campaigns. The idea is that uh, let, let's identify those and then let's go out and find uh, the the mechanism. And I, I'm not going to say, you know, go find the money to get this stuff done. We're going to need some financial support. I, I think when we put this together, there's some ways we can go about doing that. Uh, but I think the, uh, the important thing here is to... Uh, be able to identify what we're trying to change and have this campaign set up so that we can activate all three of those target audiences to be working on the same goal in the same way. So I don't have any like specific crowdsourcing ideas, but man, that's half of what I'm working on when I'm not writing or podcasting. So uh, look for those coming out. All right. Uh, this is kind of an esoteric question. Andrew asks, if there was one moment in history you could change, what would it be? <laughs> um, let me take a drink of my Mountain Dew and then we'll get back to that one. Um, one of the bad things about doing these podcasts like this, this one's got to come out tomorrow. I don't have time to sit and, and edit it up. Usually these go out to an editor uh, who goes through and, and edits them up. And, and again, thank you for our members. Uh, your membership helps pay for the editing process. It's not hugely expensive. We found some ways to get it done pretty cheaply, but it tightens it up. It makes it a little bit better. It gets rid of some of the, uh, the rough edges. Uh, when I wind up doing these, like the night before they come out, the edges get a little bit rough and I apologize for that off the bat. Um, if there was a moment in history I could change, what would it be? It's interesting because there are kind of two different uh, maybe thoughts on or approaches to history. Uh, one is the, uh, what do you say, the, the, the significant person or significant event kind of view that, that looks at history as being, uh, you know, the, the world is a stage, it's shaped by important people. Uh, they are the ones who turn the great events of history. There's another more kind of anthropological view, uh, the, the Jared Diamond kind of view that history is kind of shaped, uh, and it, it, it's the stage that kind of sets the characters, right? Like er, every generation will have, uh, a, a Hitler kind of person or every generation will have a George Washington kind of person. Um, and they'll come to the fore in whatever kind of uh, 
you know, whatever kind of manifestation they're going to be based on the forces underlying it that have kind of put that in motion. Uh, in another age, you know, Adolf Hitler would have been a starving artist, right? Uh, but he wound up to be this horrific, uh, you know, horrific figure in history for all the reasons we all understand because of where he came about in history. Malcolm Gladwell actually in the book Outliers talked a little bit about this in, in a in the tech section where he talked about Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. And he pointed out, you know, Bill Gates had been born five years earlier. He's not Bill Gates, not Bill, not the Bill Gates that we know. It, it was the fact that he was born at this very specific time in this very specific window where he was able to, growing up, get immersed in some computer technology and then be on the wave of when this change actually happened, that he became he was in a position to be Bill Gates. If it hadn't have been him, it would have been someone else, right? I, I tend to subscribe to the latter viewpoint, the uh, you know, the the forces kind of viewpoint, the the notion that the Jared Diamond's, you know, guns, germs and steel kind of thing where these underlying forces are set up and they're pushing us in a certain way. And, you know, people may rise up within that and affect history in dramatic ways, uh, but they're all essentially captive to the, the underlying narrative. There is nobody in uh, Papua New Guinea who's going to invent the automobile, right? Uh, it was only someone in America, likely in a steel manufacturing kind of place, uh, that was going to invent the automobile, right? Uh, and, and the reasons is not because people in Papua New Guinea are, are not intelligent, thoughtful people, but it's because the forces of history had not uh, afforded them that opportunity uh, in the way that it afforded uh, someone like Henry Ford to do it, right? The reason I say that is because if you believe like I do in that way, you look back at history and you really don't see, you see great events and you see fascinating, interesting people that shape, shaped and changed history, uh, but you don't see events that would necessarily, you know, you would uh, in a sense undo, right? Like would I go back and have Christ not crucified, Right. Uh, would I go back and, you know, shoot Hitler, um, you know, or, or have him arrested at the, uh, the, the pooch where he did the, uh, the, the early coup and, and have him, you know, incarcerated for a long period of time, you know, would you do things like that? And, and I'm one who says, you know, no, I, I, I really don't have anything like that. If I had to look at this, like if there's a moment in history, the only ones that can come to my mind would be like my own selfish personal history, Right. <laughs> like, you know, I would go back and change a whole bunch of things that I've done. Uh, you know, now with the, the knowledge that I have today, I wouldn't have done those stupid things years ago. I think we all have that. Right. And the thing you struggle with is, gosh, I wish 20 years ago I had not done that stupid thing. I wish I'd done this, but you know, the, the reason now that I realize that is because I've, I've had the experience of having screwed that up. So in a sense, you know, life is like we say for cities, this incremental learning process. And, uh, we all hopefully evolve and strengthen and become better people over time. It's a long way of saying, Andrew, that there isn't a moment in history that I would necessarily change. Um, I think that history, 
you know, we, yeah, we're all players on the stage and yeah, people make a, make, you know, a, a huge impact, but let's, okay, let's do this as a thought exercise. Let's say that strong towns, you know, our mission, what we're trying to do is essentially make the suburban experiment go away and be replaced with, uh, this approach called strong towns. And that 20, 30 years from now, instead of, you know, looking at the way cities are built and saying, well, you put a big parking lot out in front and you set the strip mall way back and you build the subdivision in this way with curvilinear streets. Uh, there's a body of knowledge and a body of thought, uh, that people can refer to as strong towns, right? So we are successful and history denotes us as being, uh, successful in changing this around. Uh, they look back and say there was this period of time, 60, 70 years following World War II, where we tried the suburban experiment. It failed for these and this reasons. It was replaced by the strong towns movement. And then, you know, 40, 50 years later, something will replace the strong towns movement because we will have screwed that up somehow too, right? That's the way the, that's the way the world works. I think that this is my belief. I think that if we don't do it, someone else is going to, right? I think the failure of the suburban experiment is in a sense inevitable and it will be replaced by something, something that looks and feels like an incremental chaotic, but smart bottom up, uh, type of development process. This is what we call strong towns. It will be something similar to that because that's the, the logical replacement for this, right? But that's the ultimately, uh, when you, when you take away the top down centralization and things are kind of left to their own devices, that that's what emerges. That's what happens. Should history say Chuck Marone changed the world, right? I don't, I don't think so. I think that it was the events, uh, and kind of the, the, the underlying forces that has created an environment where my thoughts and ideas are all of a sudden relevant. My thoughts and ideas back in 2004 in Brainerd, Minnesota, were not at all relevant. And when I would stand up and say, look, we're losing money on this subdivision, everyone would laugh at me. They would laugh at me. Why? Because the cities were making tons of money. People were making tons of money building houses and growing. People's houses were going from 100,000 to 200,000 to 400,000, you know, in, in, in measure, in recognizable time frames. No one wanted to listen to this, right? Now they do, and they do because the world's starting to change and we're not having those things. Is it because I'm better? I don't know, maybe a little bit better. It's because my message is more relevant. Well, it's tighter, you know, uh, it's, it, it's a little more, um, <laughs> it's a little more focused. It's a little more refined, but is it really that different? No, not really. It's just that the, the forces underlying it, uh, in our economy and our society, uh, are more ready for it now today. Uh, you know, new urbanism sometimes gets criticized for being uh, this movement to build a better suburb. And I get that. I mean, I fully get that. And I get that criticism. And I think that in many ways, it is a really, really valid criticism. Yet, if you go back to the late 80s and the early 90s, when this body of thought was being put together, you have to realize that that was it. I mean, that was the game, Right. If you would have at that point in time said, you know, we're going to be about, forget those suburbs, you know, let, let, let the, 
let the tracked home developers do that. Uh, we're going to go and we're going to be all about, uh, you know, the, the dying neighborhoods of Baltimore. CNU would never have happened. I mean, the Congress for the New Orleans would have been a nothing organization. They literally had to get their start where the action was, right? And the underlying forces essentially made uh, made it so that any organization that was going to be relevant was going to have to operate in that sphere. Now, does that mean Andres Duany is not a total genius? No, the guy's an absolute friggin' genius, right? Uh, does that mean that the people who have put together this stuff are not completely brilliant and didn't see the the need to shift this to cities and urban areas and all? No, they saw all that. They got all that. But they had to do this first, right? They had to work in that area first. That's the forces thing. So I, I look back and I, I really don't, there's no moment in history I would like to change. You know what I would like? I would love to go back and see some of this stuff. <laughs> you know, someone who like reads a lot of this and right now I'm reading this book. Hang on a sec. I'm going to grab it. It's a, uh, oh, let me just grab it. So I get you the exact title. Hang on. Okay. It's called Caesar and Christ. It's, it's like uh, two inches thick. It's by uh, Will Durant, right? Yep, Will Durant. Uh, this is, oh my gosh, this book is just blowing my mind. It is so good. It is, it is, it is so fascinating. Uh, you, you know, you read all this about the Roman Empire and about the, the rise and the shift from, uh, you know, Roman Republic into the aristocracy, into the empire, and how all this took place. It's just, it's absolutely astounding, just utterly fascinating. I would love to go back and see some of this stuff. I would love to, uh, with my own eyes, experience it. I, I read over Christmas break a book about the Apostle Paul. It was a biography, and it was written in such a beautiful poetic storytelling kind of way. The person who wrote it uh, had gone and essentially did the walks that Paul had done. He he had um, gone to Antioch, gone to Corinth, gone to Galatia, uh, gone to these places, and then walked the routes in between them where Paul would have walked. And so in the book, he's describing what Paul would have seen, you know, as, as he goes over this ridge, he would have looked to his left and seen this mountain and the clouds come over it and describes the settings. And, oh, I, I hope someday that I get a chance to do that uh, more than I've been able to do in, in my limited time thus far to see some of these places and experience some of this stuff, but change it. I've got no desire to change any of it. Uh, if I could go back and change one thing, I'll tell you this, and this may be kind of superficial. Uh, when I was a kid, I wanted to play drums in the University of Minnesota marching band. I, I'm a I'm a percussionist. Uh, I thought the University of Minnesota marching band was the greatest thing in the world. I loved it. I wanted to be part of it. I wanted to be a drummer in the marching band. I did go to the University of Minnesota, and uh, it's where I always wanted to go to college. I, I love the place. I, I'm so happy I went there. Uh, but when I went there, I was a very serious young man. You can imagine me. Uh, you know, 1920, I'd spent two summers in the army. Uh, I was there ready to learn. I wanted to get done and get on with my life. I, I was not a particularly, uh, good student. Maybe I can just say it like that. I, I, I mean, I'm no idiot, but it, it didn't really inspire me. Right. It was more like, how do I get through fluid dynamics and statics and, you know, structures and get out so I can get married, uh, to my girlfriend who I, at, 
I did wind up marrying. We were dating in junior high. So it was kind of like I was in this point in my life where I wanted to be very serious and forthright and get through and get things done and take care of my business. And, um, you know, looking back on that, I wish I'd been a little less serious. I wish I had enjoyed it uh, a little bit more. And if it had taken me more than, you know, the, the four years it took me, I mean, I, I finished with an engineering degree in four years. Most people, it took five. Some people took six. Some people took more than that. Uh, I would have been just fine in my life if it had taken me an extra year. Uh, but I got to go play in marching band all over the country. Uh, there's the one thing I would change, Andrew. All right, Eric. Uh, Chuck, I know you are an avid reader of history. And particularly, you keenly appreciate the intellectual and moral history of early Christian and Western thought. Thank you. I, I, yes, it's a passion. Um, if you were to relate the Strong Towns movement to an event in the past or a story or movement arising from that event, which transformed the way we think about the world today, what would be that event and what lessons and insights do you think that story could provide strong citizens today? Wow. Um, this question is going to get me in a lot of trouble. Uh, cause I've used this analogy before amongst closed groups and, uh, it, it, everybody kind of nods and gets it. Um, but they, they, uh, they say you can't repeat that. Um, so I'm not going to repeat it in the way that I've told it before, but I will oh, hang on. Who in the world is calling me? Nobody I need to talk to right now. I'm going to, I'm going to give this to you in, uh, in a more abstract way. Uh, I really uh, love reading. Well, I'm reading the book Caesar and Christ right now. I, I have probably 40 or 50 books of, of similar genre, early Christian history, early, you know, the Judaism to Christianity transformation. I said, I read the biography of Paul. It was absolutely utterly fascinating. It's probably the fourth biography of Paul that I've read. This was the best one by far. Uh, so, you know, this is really very interesting to me and inspiring to me in many ways. I have couched what we're doing in the language of, of early Christianity. And I'm going to preface this whole conversation by saying, I don't think anything we're doing is divine, divinely inspired. I'm not trying to put it on any type of pedestal along there. I'm, I'm, I'm in answering your question, Eric, I'm giving you the, the parallels that I see. And here's what they are. You had uh, uh, kind of an apocalyptic time. Uh, first century Judaism, uh, Jews lived under Roman oppression. Uh, this is not a great period of time. You know, Jesus was crucified, but there were a lot of people who were crucified. I mean, literally thousands and thousands of people uh, who were crucified before him and after him. Uh, crucifixion was essentially a Roman form of state terrorism keeping people in line. Uh, this was not a great period of time to be alive. And there were a, a bunch of apop apocalyptic kind of figures uh, around this time who, you know, would share messages of uh, the, the, the end is coming. There's doom ahead. Things are bad. Things aren't working. Uh, then there was this, this man and I, I'm not, I, you know, really, I'm not getting into the theology part of it here. I'm talking about the historical part. There was this man who uh, shared a message that for its time was astoundingly radical. Uh, the message that 
you know, we are, are not preordained to be slaves or servants. We're not preordained to live lives of misery. Uh, we're, uh, you know, have the ability to work together, to love one another, to do things differently. And we have the capacity to do this. And if we want to, we can essentially create the kind of world we want to live in here on earth. We don't have to wait for someone else to do it. We don't have to wait for us to die. Uh, we don't have to, we, you know, we can, we can do this ourselves in, even in the context of what we have. It was a, it, it, it cannot be understated how radical this message was. There then was this movement of people and you can point to Paul you can point to the apostles, you can point to different, who went out and essentially shared this message and brought it to different uh, places around and did the necessary things to make it actionable. And I'll, I'll explain that a little bit in, in the parallel. Uh, you had uh, one of the early controversies in the early Christian church was about uh, Torah and the law, um, Jewish law had all kinds of requirements. I mean, that was, you know, basically the, the, uh, there were all these purity rituals for bathing for, you can't touch this. You can't do that. Uh, if you're going to approach the temple, you've got to do it in a certain way. There's certain offerings you have to make. Uh, you have to be circumcised. You have to eat foods in a certain way, prepared in a certain way. When the message started to spread beyond core Judaism out into the Gentile world, uh, some of those things were a real downer. Uh, it was pretty easy for people in Corinth to buy into the notion that instead of having all of these vengeful gods or what have you, we just had one God who loved us and cared for us. And, uh, you know, we could live this Christian life and, and there were certain advantage. There were, the, there were great things to that. But then people come along and say, you know, uh, if you're going to follow this Jesus person, uh, you need to be circumcised. That's kind of a deal killer. Right. And, you know, as fervent as your belief might be, uh, mutilating your own, uh, genitals as an adult, you know, there's something that you would like consciously go out and do, uh, is a pretty high bar to cross. And so one of the things that, uh, these guys out there making the Christian message actionable did was say, you know, you, you don't have to do that. You, you, you don't have to do that. Here's why. Uh, here's why in a theological context, here's why in a practical context, you don't have to do that. And that was, I mean, literally the first 50 years, uh, maybe hundred years or more, you know, of Christianity was controversies over that kind of thing, right? Making it actionable. Here's the parallel. I, I, I think in, you can name your favorite one. I think there was a lot of people for a long time. Uh, predicting doom with the suburban experiment, right? Again, please don't infer any me ascribing any divine notions to any of this. And, and I, in my example, I've used very specific people. Uh, I'm not going to use specific people here because I don't want you to go there. And I don't want anybody to misquote me or misunderstand me. I'm really talking about a, a body of thought. There's a body of thought that essentially filled the the John the Baptist kind of role, right? Repent. Uh, the end is near. Things are bad. We're sinful people. Uh, th th there's there's a body of thought that has filled that that said, look, what we're doing is is wrong. 
it has huge environmental implications. It has huge economic implications. It has huge social, you know, cultural implications. We need to stop doing this. And there's a whole chorus of people who have been doing that really, really well. There's another, let's say, pivot point group of people. And, and for me, it's the, it's the CNU and the body of thought with the CNU that really stepped in and said, we've got a different message. Uh, we've got a message of how to do things differently, how to look at the world differently, and uh, how to think about these things in a different way. And it, it's not a new message. Uh, it's actually an old message. It's a message that's been around a long, long time. But if we go back to our roots about how to build great places, here's what it is. And we can modernize this and we can bring it up to today. And we can, you know, philosophically see and understand a different way to do things. I think that strong towns fits into this narrative as the next part, the the apostle part, the part that says we need to take this message of doom uh, and this antidote, this new way of doing things, and actually make it actionable for people. Uh, we need to go out and help people actually uh, in the, you know, in Corinth, in Galatia, in Ephesia, in all these little places we need to meet and say, how are we going to get, how are we going to get you to the next step? How are we going to help you, uh, understand this message, you know, in a way that is not the catechism, but is, you know, love thy neighbor, right? Something, something like that. Uh, and then make that actionable to you. When you love your neighbor, that means A, B, C, and D, right? When you say we want a productive place, that means A, B, C, and D. And then how do you go about in your community actually doing that, making that happen? I feel like that's our challenge. I feel like as a strong towns movement, that's where we fit into this timeline. Uh, do we get the message of doom? Yeah, we, we absolutely get it. Are we out there preaching doom? No. I mean, we, we are saying in a way, look, the end is near where like, we buy into that stuff, right? Uh, do we understand the message of hope, the message of change? I would like to think that we do. I would like to think that we embody that. Things can be better. We can make it better. We have the tools in our hands at our disposal to do things differently and make it better. Uh, I think our challenge is to take that and make it actionable. What does that mean? What does that mean, right? Uh, how do we go to a place and say, look, you don't have to get circumcised, uh, but you do have to do A, B, and C, right? You, you, you do have to, uh, you know, do this, this, and this. And, and here's some parameters for how to actually put this to work. And you know what? It, when you read like a, a biography of Paul, what you see is that here's a man who was very passionate about what he was doing, very passionate about the message. And he would put some, uh, you know, borders up, like you shouldn't be doing that and you should be doing this. But for a lot of it, it was saying, hey, guys, uh, let's figure this out together. Like, here's here's the message. How are we going to make this work in Corinth? How are we going to make this work in Rome? Uh, and And, you know appointing local people to kind of lead some of this stuff and connecting these places together and having different, you know, apostles and pilgrims go back and forth and share messages. And, uh, how do they, how do you share a message with someone who, uh, you know, is of a completely different faith or completely different religion? I, I see a ton of parallels in terms of what these people went through, uh, and what we're going through and what we're trying to get off the ground. Let me finish this answer by just reiterating. I'm not talking about divinity, right? There's no part of me that's saying anything. What I'm talking about is is the history, 
the actions. And I draw a, a ton of inspiration from that kind of timeline of how uh, massive change in humanity and in the trajectory of humanity came about. I don't think we're starting Christianity. I, I don't think the Strong Towns movement is going to have the impact on the world that that you know a new religion has had. But I'm, my thoughts are not that grand either. You know, I'm not trying to. Uh, I hope that we can take the cities of the United States and give them a new default approach for how to build, go about building their places. Cities as vastly diverse as, you know, the, the crumbling neighborhoods of Baltimore and the little town of Ponderay in northern Idaho. Uh, cities like Springfield and uh, even Boston and New York, uh, all the way to places like Dallas and, you know, the, the, the suburbs uh, around a place like Dallas. I, I, I'm, these are massively different places and we need to give them, uh, the, the actionable, uh, tools, the actionable, uh, thought processes so that they can start evolving and creating a, a different approach there locally. And that's, if we can look back 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now and see in America, uh, that has a, a fundamentally different approach to building places. One, based on Strong Town's principles, uh, we will have won. We will have done, uh, you know, what we set out to do. And hopefully, I won't be beheaded in the end. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, I think that we are down to just uh, silly questions. I can do a couple of those here at the end, um, Matt. <laughs> Uh, I appreciate the questions, Matt. You're, you're a great guy. And, uh, I know I give you a lot of, uh, a lot of grief, but man, you help us out a ton, a ton, a ton in ways that you don't even know. Um, Matt Steele, my friend. Uh, okay. Chuck, what's your favorite cookie you bake this Christmas? I don't know if everybody knows. I, I love to bake. Uh, it was a tradition that my grand, my grandmothers both had. Uh, they have both passed away. I, um, started baking after after they had passed away because the holiday season was such uh you know everybody has different experiences at holiday season there's certain for me certain sounds the music uh the smells uh but very much so the taste and i grew up in these families you know one very norwegian one kind of scandinavian prussian german kind of thing uh, where there were just a lot of sweets and goodies everywhere. And as someone who kind of has a little bit of a sweet tooth, this was a really important part of my holidays. And when my grandmothers uh, passed away, obviously I missed them for a, a lot of reasons. But I found that uh, I could kind of honor their memory and, uh, and, and, and really remember them in a very positive way uh, by doing some of the things that they did around the holidays. I found as I st got started that the more I did, the more I enjoyed it, not only because it was a, a real nice time just away. When you're baking, you're not doing other things. You're just kind of it's, – it's almost meditative. Uh, and, and you know, I, I enjoy sharing with people. Uh, there's a lot of love uh, expressed through food. And when you can give someone, especially someone who's not expecting it – uh, a, a nice, fantastic tray of really good tasting treats. Uh, you've, you've shared a little bit of love 
And uh, I just I, I enjoy it's a it's a something I've done for the last decade or more, and I just look forward to it every year, and I absolutely love it. Uh, my favorite is a gingerbread boys. I I can't get in. I love gingerbread, and I only make gingerbread once a year. Uh, it is the best. I used to make them a little too thin because that's how I grew up having them. Uh, I went and this is gonna at 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 Disney land in Disney world. There's a, they have bakeries and they sell gingerbread. They usually sell it during the holiday season, but now they sell it pretty much year round. And I find myself once a year in, in one or the other, you know, coast, uh, one of the other Disney complexes. And I always afford myself, uh, some time at the bakery to get a couple of these gingerbread boys and they make them really thick, really, really thick. And, oh, I just, it's that taste. I just love that gingerbread taste. And I started making mine a, a little bit thicker uh, about three years ago. And, oh, they're so much better. They're, they're so good. I mean, I liked them before they were good, but now they're just, oh, they've reached a whole nother level. So my favorite is a gingerbread boy. Uh, I put red hots and uh, some um, chocolate chip, chocolate, yeah, chocolate chips on mine. Uh, as decorations, and they kind of add to the flavor a little bit too. Very good. Uh, another one from my friend Matt. What Frozen song gets played most in your house? I, of course, have two daughters. One's 10, one's 7. Frozen is a large part of my life. I think we have had the movie front to end. Uh, we, we don't watch TV. I don't have cable. The TV's like upstairs in the loft. Uh, it probably comes on once a month, but when it comes on, it's Frozen. We probably watch that movie a dozen times. Uh, the, the, the song that we're getting right now, there's a pentatonics version of let it go. I think is what it, maybe that's not what there's a pentatonics version. My kids are love pentatonics and, uh, there's a version of one of the, the frozen songs that they play over and over again. Uh, but the one that gets the most play right now is the, uh, the snowman one, not, not the, it's the, it's the one that the snowman sings. The snowman is, uh, Olaf. And he sings this song about, uh, summer, like the, you know, I can't wait to see what life is like in the summer. And the reason they sing that is because my youngest daughter does a really great Olaf impersonation. And my two kids have like this vaudeville act kind of thing they do, uh, with this song because it's a, it's a funny song and they kind of go back and forth. Anyway, that's the one that's been playing over and over and over the last few weeks. And, and we, you know, obviously rotate in and out of different favorites. Uh, final question, Chuck, can you put a webcam out the North office window so I can watch the coal trains? Um, one quick thing about the trains, I have moved offices. Uh, I used to have a podcast office on the North side of the building, uh, which was right adjacent to the train tracks. And you could look out the window and see the trains. Uh, and when we record the podcast and the trains that come by, you'd hear it. I now am on the south side of the building. And I won't give you the whole story of why that went down, but I'm on the south side of the building. And um, I like it. It's great. My office is wonderful. Uh, I get a lot more sun now. Uh, my desk actually just faces like I just look out the window at the sun all day, which in Minnesota in January is a rather important uh, feature for an office. Uh, the thing is, though, the train's actually louder here when the windows open uh, because of where the whistle blows. It's really kind of odd. Even though it's on the other side of the building, it's much louder here. That being said, 
when the window's closed, which it, obviously it is now because it's way below zero outside, uh, it's pretty quiet in here, and I don't get the the train ambiance that I was able to enjoy uh, in the in the other office space on the other side of the building. Uh, I'll see what I can do, Matt. I mean, you gotta you you're close enough. You gotta come out and just hang out someday. Uh, any of you here passing through Brainerd are, of course, more than welcome to uh, to stop by, hang out. Uh, check things out, roll up your sleeves and, uh, and help us out here. Uh, come in and sit in for a podcast. I actually have two microphones in here. You're welcome anytime. Uh, I didn't know if we'd have an hour worth of stuff. I should have known once I got started talking that, uh, I could, uh, BS my way through a full hour. Thanks for all you guys that submitted questions. Uh, I, I want to let you know on the podcast, got some fun stuff coming up. I've got some really great interviews, uh, that I'm scheduling or have scheduled that I think are going to be great. I also got feedback from you guys that you enjoy when I actually take the time and do a real podcast. Not one of these where I'm answering questions, just talking, but one where, uh, like the olden days where I have clips, uh, I've got like three of those kind of queued up to do. Uh, they take a little bit more time. I'm not doing much traveling until we get into February. So I'm going to try to do two or three of those, get them prepared here in January for you. I enjoy doing those too. They're a lot more work, but, uh, I'll get, I'll get them for you. I promise. And, uh, we also had some fun doing the member interviews and I want to pick that up and do some more of those too. Uh, we did 10 in one week and I'd actually like to find a way to do one a week or, or one every other week because our members are absolutely fascinating people. And, and if I can spend 10 minutes or so with, with one of them and give you a little taste of who they are and the kind of stuff that they're working on, uh, I think that's one of those ways we can start to connect people and, and really broaden out this movement quite a bit. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for being part of the Strong Towns movement and keep doing what you can to build Strong Towns. Happy New Year, everybody. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. I like visiting my parents whenever I get a chance to live near Chicago. I, uh, yeah, yep. I, uh, I get a lot of parking tickets in that city. And uh, the cool thing about Chicago parking tickets is on the ticket, it'll list all the different kind of parking tickets you can get and how much they all cost so you can compare. <laughs> like I learned, it's $50 cheaper sometimes to park on the sidewalk.
how do they figure out that pricing system? <laughs> and it's like, you park in front of the fire hydrant, it's dangerous, $100. You park on the sidewalk, hilarious, $50. <laughs> 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 